which I believe most of you know. So the questions should, the answers you should have at the end of the day are when we talk about burden of proof, what do we mean? Uh, when we talk about the status onus of proof, what do we mean? Uh, both in procedural matters, in its application, in its discharging the standard of proof. Of course, the rationale is to assist decision makers or presiding officers uh, to make out of proof of given facts. So uh, in your slides, please take time to look at the meaning of burden onus of proof. Evidential burden, I would like to believe that you know it, uh, but look up it in the context of the burden of proof, uh, whether if the accused has an evidential burden, the burden of proof shifts from the state uh, to the uh, accused. You know the general principle that in all criminal cases, the burden of proof is on the state and at, and the standard is that of proof beyond reasonable doubt. That burden does not at any one time during the trial shift to the accused person. So the state has to uh, prove. So the state has to prove uh, uh, various aspects. First of all, the state has to prove the identity and element of the faith. In other words, that the accused is the perpetrator, that there is intent or intention, that there is commission or omission of the act with which the accused person is charged, that act is unlawful and there is no defense uh, that could absolve the accused. So each element has to be proven beyond reasonable doubt. And uh, you should also look at the ambit in terms of exceptions to the general rule when it comes to proof of sanity or proof of insanity for that matter because there is the presumption that every person is presumed sane but if there is something that comes to the proof of insanity of an accused person uh, under section 78 that shifts to the accused because it's a mental element and uh, it would be putting a lot of burden on the state so look at section 70, 78 uh, when you're engaging with it and you can also look at section 78.1a, which codifies the common law defense uh, that requires that the accused, uh, if he raises a defense of insanity, uh, it's a defense, but he would have to prove that he was insane at the time of committing the crime. Um, as such, he should be absolved. Then um, you also need to look at section 78.1b that talks about uh, the rule regarding onus of proof. In other words, where the accused raises a defense of mental illness, he bears that burden for it. So some of the questions that you should ask yourself, what's the nature of the defense in section 78? And supposing the mental illness or defect comes up during the course of hearing. So when you're talking about sanity, there is the then question, uh, was the person sane at the time of commission of the crime? then there is also the now question in the course of hearing is the accused person able to appreciate what's going on 
So if the accused is suffering from a mental illness at the time of the hearing, then you're dealing with a now question and there you use section 77. If the accused is saying he was not able to appreciate what happened when he was committing the offense, then there you're asking the then question. So that would be now section 78, uh, 1A and 1B. So you also read the slides on the procedural matters. The accused has an obligation to raise a defense such that the state can uh, deal with it to ensure that uh, through cross-examination and other ways that that defense um, is struck down but still beyond uh, reasonable doubt. If the defense is raised later, the state might request court to reopen the accused's case for purposes of cross-examination on the defense. So uh, those are some of the critical aspects that you really need to look at. In terms of standard of proof, uh, you know it is uh, beyond reasonable doubt. Not slightly, not slight doubt, but reasonable doubt, beyond reasonable doubt. And the accused is not required to prove his or her innocence. If anything, the state is supposed to prove that the accused is guilty. So until the state has discharged that on us, it, beyond reasonable doubt, then uh, it has not it has not engaged its obligation in a criminal case. So those are the few pointers that I would like you to look at when you look at the slides and we shall meet during the lecture. Thank you very much. Good day class. I hope you're well and welcome to our last lecture for the semester. This is chapter 32 and we look at the standard and burden of proof and evidential duties in civil cases. Last week, we looked at the standard and burden of proof and evidential duties in criminal cases, and we say that the burden of proof is on the state and does not at any one time shift to the accused unless the accused raises uh, the defense of uh, insanity. And we say the standard is that of proof beyond reasonable doubt. Now, today, I will look at uh, the position in civil cases. And so by way of introduction, we'll look at um, the onus of, burden, the of burden of proof, the evidential burden, the ambit, and uh, other aspects that speak to the discharge of this standard of proof. So you will look at the nature and incidence of the burden of proof, the evidential burden distinguished, then the duty to begin, in other words, was the right to begin to address court in discharge of this burden of proof, and then when is a prima facie case made out and when can someone be when can someone receive an absolution from instance and then we also look at the civil standard so in terms of the nature and the incidence of burden of proof the onus of proof or burden of proof refers to the obligation of a party to persuade the trial of facts by the end of the case of the truth of some propositions i think that's the same across and it's in context of a civil matter it refers to the obligation that is placed on a litigant to adduce evidence that is sufficient to persuade the court that at the end of the trial that claim that has been put across or that defense that has been put across should succeed and this is the case of Pillay that I would expect you to read it's also referred to this is the burden of proof as the risk of non-persuasion because it determines who bears the risk of the failure if the evidence on a given point is lacking. So 
um, in civil law, the incidence of the burden of proof is determined by the law, by the substantive law. For instance, uh, the law might provide that um, contracts are enforceable and the party that seeks to enforce a contract must prove the existence of the said contract. That is a position of substantive law that is used to establish the burden of proof. And one thing that you should also know is that the burden of proof in an action does not necessarily fall on one party alone, but every party will bear a burden of proof depending on the issue that he or she alleges that exists. So perhaps one might one party might have a claim, the defense might have a counterclaim, the party might have a special defense. So because of these different aspects, these different issues, they will be distinct and several burden of proof. These burdens might have nothing to do with each other. What matters is that this discharge of the burden at times might only arise after another has been discharged. If I may explain that, for instance, you might be claiming as a bank for the recovery of a loan. So you'll have to prove that the loan was made out. And the defendant will prove uh, that the loan was paid. So if we first have to deal with the loan as one issue and the burden of proof is on the plaintiff that gave up the loan, then we shall also issue, deal with the issue of the repayments. If the repayments have been made, then that would be the defendant who will have to prove that that repayment has been made. So in civil cases, there is always a possibility that the burden will always shift from one party to another. Like for the example of the case we have, been give, we have given, because the plaintiff proves that the loan has been made out, um, that has been uh, a burden of proof on his or her part. Now, if the defendant proves that there has been payment, then that is uh, a burden of proof that is on his or her part that he or she decides to extinguish. So the burden of proof always shifts from one party to another. Now, in terms of risk and in terms of uh, persuasion, if the plaintiff proves that the loan was taken but it is unclear whether it was paid, uh, then the plaintiff succeeds because the bank has not because the 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 other party has not given clarity as to whether he paid the loan but if the bank proves the loan was paid and the and the other party proves that um there was um and and goes ahead to prove done repayment then uh, this there's still a success on the part of the plaintiff because of the failure to indicate by the defendant that he paid the loan but if the defendant indicates that he or she paid the loan then to that end the plaintiff would fail and the defendant would succeed so that is something clear that you should um that you should look out for then in addition um what matters is um someone at times asks what about the portion of the concessional court what does it show about this Provided the imposition of the onus is not arbitrary, uh, it does not affect uh, the concept of the right to equality, then there is no breach. But usually uh, the impairment of rights um, is in criminal cases. But if it arises, um, parties are always at liberty to challenge it in the courts. That was raised in Prince versus Vandali and, and another. So um, you need to distinguish the evidential burden in civil cases. Uh, we have discussed the evidential burden at length and look and given the concepts of the wording that has to be 
uh, looked at that has to be identified when you're looking out for an evidential burden as opposed to a legal burden. I would advise you to go back and read our chapters 29, 30, and 31 where we discuss about the evidential burdens um, in detail. But now when you come up to civil cases, we are referring to that duty that is placed on someone that in order for his case to be successful or in order to satisfy court that is entitled to succeed on his claim or his defense, he has the burden to prove that evidence. But then we also have the other burden of proof, which is a different species, evidential burden, uh, where we are talking about the duty on a litigant to produce evidence to combat a prima facie case. Now, this means one litigant has proved um, on some degree of probabilities the existence of facts. The other party also has the duty to disprove the existence of those facts. So where there is the need to disprove, then there is a shift of the evidential burden to the party that seeks to disprove. And that shift is covered under the case of Triggy and another versus Goddard. I would greatly advise you to read it. Now, the other aspect starts, uh, that we need to speak to that is instructive in starting these cases is the duty to begin. In criminal cases, we know that the prostitution that starts its case, then later, if a prima facie case has been made out, then um, the concept shifts to the, um, uh, to the accused to either give them to, to the accused. If the court finds out a prima facie case, the accused then has to give his defense. In civil cases, the duty to begin depends on the circumstances. Who will be disadvantaged if another begins? Who will be advantaged if another begins? So it's rather more of an objective and subjective issue that might be subjected to the court to decide. Uh, and uh, when you look at the uniform rules, they give us aspects um, that, are, that are instructive in understanding the duty to begin. Rule 39.5.9 states that the party that bears the burden of proof has the right to adduce evidence first. And 39.11 says any part of the opening of the trial can apply to court to decide who should start. So then the court would decide on who should start. And then there are situations where the parties that have a duty to adduce evidence first because of the different issues, that's covered under Rule 39.13. But what you should note is that when you're reading Rule 39.11 and Rule 39.13, it's not about um, it's not about the the coincidence with burden of proof. It might coincide, it might not coincide, but it's more about the duty to adduce evidence. And then um, another aspect that you need to appreciate is the term prima facie case. This is something that you have come across. Uh, when we have discussed aspects of um, prima facie case in criminal law, a case to answer has been made out. Now, in civil cases, it's a little different. It refers to a case which has been made out when there is evidence upon which a court applying its mind might reasonably find for the plaintiff. Now, it's not more. It's not about um, criminal cases, but it's about civil cases. So there should be evidence on every essential element of the claim which court would use to find in favor of the party that it believes that the evidence is Then a prima facie case also refers to the call for an explanation from the defendant so that if no explanation is forthcoming, the court might be entitled to conclude that there is no uh, prima facie case. There, there is no, I mean, conclude that there is no reasonable explanation and as, as a result, make a finding on the conclusivity of the prima facie case. 
The other aspect that you need to learn uh, or appreciate is the aspect of absolution from instance. And this basically refers to a situation where uh, it has been established that the evidence is insufficient for finding to be made against the defendant. It usually follows the clause of the case for the claimant or the plaintiff. And if court finds that evidence is insufficient, it might make um, out an absolution from instance. But we should know that this is not a battery institution of a claim. If the court was clear on on the position of the claim, I'll give an example. Uh, for instance, um, if the claim um, is to the effect that there is a positive finding that there is no claim that exists against the defendant, uh, the party that brought the claim, the party that brought the case, is at liberty to bring another case, provided it's not on the same grounds, on the same principles on which the court based its finding. So if the claim is that there was no contract, but then um, there are aspects that speak to other aspects of the law, such as uh, banking law, such as um, maybe family law, uh, maybe negligence, uh, uh, delict, and so the, 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 the claimant might still bring another claim. Not necessarily in the claim that was uh, decided, but in another claim that speaks of another aspect of the law. So that is absolution from instance. Now, there are also aspects when absolution from instance um, arises when the plaintiff has sued more than one defendant. Uh, the court might make different absolutions from instance in respect to the different defendants. For that, please read Mazibuko. Then, at times, um, the court might decide that yes, we have listened to the case of the claimant, but we have decided we are not going to give the absolution from instance now for reasons to be given in the judgment. We shall give this uh, reasoning later at the close of the defense at, at the close of the defense case. That is also fine uh, because um, it's allowed. And there is a case of Supreme Service Station versus uh, Fox that speaks to that. The standard of proof, we have mentioned this before, it's on probabilities, but it's on a reasonable degree of probability. According to Lord Deming, he says that the civil standard must carry a reasonable degree of probability, not so high as required in a criminal case. The, the question should be if the evidence is such that the tribunal can say that more probable than not. If the tribunal says more probable than not, uh, to the existence of facts or the existence of aspects, then the burden is discharged. But if the probabilities are equal, then it's not. Uh, this was adopted in uh, a case of Ocean Accident and Guarantee Corporation versus Cork. So that is that is it about the civil standard of proof, the civil burden of proof. Uh, I look forward to having our discussions and. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Good day, class. I hope you're well. And welcome to our last lecture for the semester. This is chapter 32. And we look at the standard and burden of proof and evidential duties in civil cases. Uh, last week, we looked at the standard and burden of proof and evidential duties in criminal cases. And we say that the burden of proof is on the state and does not at any one time shift to the accused unless the accused raises uh, the defense of uh, insanity. 
and we say the standard is that of proof beyond reasonable doubt. Now, today, I will look at uh, the position in civil cases. And so, by way of introduction, we'll look at um, the onus of, burden of, the of burden of proof, the evidential burden, the ambit, and uh, other aspects that speak to the discharge of this standard of proof. So, you will look at the nature and incidence of the burden of proof, the evidential burden distinguished, then the duty to begin, in other words, was the right to begin to address court in discharge of this burden of proof. And then when is a prima facie case made out and when can someone be, when can someone receive an absolution from instance? And then we also look at the civil standard. So in terms of the nature and incidence of burden of proof, the onus of proof or burden of proof refers to the obligation of a party to persuade the trial of facts by the end of the case of the truth of some propositions. I think that's the same across. And it's in context of a civil matter, it refers to the obligation that is placed on a litigant to adduce evidence that is sufficient to persuade the court that at the end of the trial, that claim that has been put across or that defense that has been put across should succeed. And this is the case of Pillay that I would expect you to read. It's also referred to, this is the burden of proof, as the risk of non-persuasion because it determines who bears the risk of the failure if the evidence on a given point is lacking. So, um, in civil law, the incidence of the burden of proof is determined by the law, by the substantive law. For instance, uh, the law might provide that um, contracts are enforceable and the party that seeks to enforce a contract must prove the existence of the said contract. That is a position of substantive law that is used to establish the burden of proof. And one thing that you should also know is that the burden of proof in an action does not necessarily fall on one party alone, but every party will bear a burden of proof depending on the issue that he or she alleges that exists. So perhaps one might one party might have a claim, the defense might have a counterclaim, the party might have a special defense. So because of these different aspects, these different issues, there will be distinct and several burden of proof. These burdens might have nothing to do with each other. What matters is that this discharge of the burden at times might only arise after another has been discharged. If I may explain that, for instance, you might be claiming as a bank for the recovery of a loan. So you'll have to prove that the loan was made out. And the defendant will prove uh, that the loan was paid. So the, we first have to deal with the loan as one issue and the burden of proof is on the plaintiff that gave up the loan, then we shall also issue, deal with the issue of the repayments. If the repayments have been made, then that would be the defendant who will have to prove that that repayment has been made. So in civil cases, there is always a possibility that the burden will always shift from one party to another. Like for the example of the case we have, been give, we have given, because the plaintiff proves that the loan has been made out, um, that has been uh, a burden of proof on his or her part. Now, if the defendant proves that there has been payment, then that is uh, a burden of proof that is on his or her part that he or she decides to uh, extinguish. So the burden of proof always shifts from one party to another. Now, in terms of risk and in terms of uh, persuasion, 
if the plaintiff proves that the loan was taken but it is unclear whether it was paid, uh, then the plaintiff succeeds because the bank has not because the 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 other party has not given clarity as to whether he paid the loan but if the bank proves the loan was paid and the and the other party proves that um there was um and and goes ahead to prove non repayment then uh, this there is still a success on the part of the plaintiff because of the failure to indicate by the defendant that he paid the loan but if the defendant indicates that he or she paid the loan then to that end the plaintiff would fail and the defendant would succeed so that is something clear that you should um that you should look out for then in addition um what matters is um someone at times asks what about the portion of the concessional court what does it show about this Provided the imposition of the onus is not arbitrary, uh, it does not affect uh, the concept of the right to equality, then there is no breach. But usually uh, the impairment of rights um, is in criminal cases. But if it arises, um, parties are always at liberty to challenge it in the courts. That was raised in Prince Law versus Vandali and, and another. So um, you need to distinguish the evidential burden in civil cases uh, we have discussed the evidential burden at length and look and given the concepts of the wording that has to be uh, looked at that has to be identified when you're looking out for an evidential burden as opposed to a legal burden i would advise you to go back and read our chapters 29 30 and 31 where we'll discuss about the evidential burdens um, in detail but now when you come up to civil cases we are referring to that duty that is placed on someone that in order for his case to be successful or in order to satisfy court that is entitled to succeed on his claim or his defense he has the burden to prove that evidence but then we also have the other burden of proof which is a different species evidential burden uh, where we are talking about the duty on a litigant to produce evidence to combat a prima facie case now this means one litigant has proved um, on some degree of probabilities the existence of facts the other party also has the duty to disprove the existence of those facts so where there is the need to disprove then there is a shift of the evidential burden to the party that seeks to disprove and that shift is covered under the case of tricky and another versus Goddard. i would greatly advise you to read it now the other aspect starts, uh, that we need to speak to that is instructive in starting these cases is the duty to begin. In criminal cases we know that the prostitution that starts its case, then later if a prima facie case has been made out then um, the concept shifts to the, uh, to the accused to either give a, to, to the accused, if the court finds out a prima facie case, the accused then has to give his defense. In civil cases, the duty to begin depends on the circumstances. Who will be disadvantaged if another begins? Who will be advantaged if another begins? So it's rather more of an objective and subjective issue that might be subjected to the court to decide. Uh, and uh, when you look at the uniform rules, they give us aspects um, that, are, that are instructive in understanding the duty to begin. Rule 39.5.9 states that the party that bears the burden of proof has the right to adduce evidence first. 
and 39.11 says any part of the opening of the trial can apply to court to decide who should start. So then the court would decide on who should start. And then there are situations where the uh, parties that have a duty to produce evidence first because of the different issues that's covered under Rule 39.13. But what you should note is that when you're reading Rule 39.11 and Rule 39.13, it's not about... Um, it's not about the the coincidence with burden of proof. It might coincide, it might not coincide, but it's more about the duty to adduce evidence. And then um, another aspect that you need to appreciate is the Tamprima Faki case. This is something that you have come across uh, when we have discussed aspects of um, Prima Faki case in criminal law, a case to answer has been made out. Now, in civil cases, it's a little different. It refers to a case which has been made out when there's evidence upon which a court applying its mind might reasonably find for the plaintiff now it's not more it's not about um criminal cases but it's about civil cases so there should be evidence on every essential element of the claim which court would use to find in favor of the party that it believes that the evidence is on. then a preface case also refers to the call for an explanation from the defendant so that if no explanation is forthcoming the court might be entitled to conclude that there is no uh prima facie case there, there is no i mean conclude that there is no reasonable explanation and as, as a result make a finding on the conclusivity of the prima facie case the other aspect that you need to learn uh, or appreciate is the aspect of absolution from instance and this basically refers to a situation where uh, it has been established that the evidence is insufficient for finding to be made against the defendant. It usually follows the clause of the case for the claimant or the plaintiff. And if court finds that evidence is insufficient, it might make um, out an absolution from instance. But we should know that this is not a battery institution of a claim. If the court was clear on on the position of the claim i'll give an example uh for instance um if the claim um is to the effect that there is a positive finding that there is no claim that exists against the defendant uh the party that brought the claim the party that brought the case is at liberty to bring another case provided it's not on the same grounds, on the same principles on which the court based its finding. So if the claims that there was no contract, but then um, there are aspects that speak to other aspects of the law, such as uh, banking law, such as um, maybe family law, uh, maybe negligence, uh, uh, delict, and so the, 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 the claimant might still bring another claim not necessarily in the claim that was uh, decided but in another claim that speaks of another aspect of the law so that is absolution from instance now there are also aspects when absolution from instance um, arises when the plaintiff has sued more than one defendant uh, the court might make different absolutions from instance in respect to the different defendants for that please read Mazibuko. then at times um the court might decide that yes, we have listened to the case of the claimant, but we have decided we are not going to give the absolution from instance now for reasons to be given in the judgment. We shall give this uh, reasoning later. 
at the close of the defense at the close of the defense case that is also fine uh, because um, it's allowed and there is a case of Supreme Service Station versus uh, Fox that speaks to that the standard of proof we have mentioned this before it's on probabilities but it's on a reasonable degree of probability according to Lord Deming he says that the civil standard must carry a reasonable degree of probability not so high as required in a criminal case the, the question should be if the evidence is such that the tribunal can say that more probable than not if the tribunal says more probable than not uh, to the existence of facts or the existence of aspects then the burden is discharged but if the probabilities are equal then it's not uh, this was adopted in uh, a case of ocean accident and guarantee corporation versus cork so that is that is it about the civil standard of proof, the civil burden of proof. Uh, I look forward to having our discussions and uh, have a great day. Thank you.